0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 229, and today's guest is Natalia Bailey, CTO and co-founder of Axion Systems. I'm excited that there is a renewed interest in space and new goals that seem aggressive, like traveling to Mars, for example. But as we've witnessed in the past, when the most brilliant and ambitious people work on a challenge, the improbable becomes probable. Natalia is one of these pioneers who, as a child, she dreamed of becoming an astronaut. She actually applied to NASA twice, but was unfortunately denied each time. Instead, she is using her brilliant mind to build a company in the space industry, which has turned out to be the perfect timing because of this renewed interest in space and also the rapid growth of the satellite industry. According to The Hustle, there are about 6,000 satellites in orbit, and that number is expected to grow to 50,000 by 2030. Axion Systems is redefining space mobility with the world's most advanced ion electrospray in-space propulsion systems. To put it simply, the company has built groundbreaking technology which helps satellites maneuver while in orbit. The company recently announced a $42 million Series C round of funding led by Tracker Capital. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around the space industry, the mission to Mars, and civilian space travel. Natalia's academic career, which ultimately led her down the path to pursue her PhD studies at the MIT Space Propulsion Lab, the full founding story of Axion Systems with her co-founder Louis Perna and all the details on their revolutionary product, how they went about getting traction and raising capital, lessons learned from building a company in the space industry, Natalia's role as an investor with X Factor Ventures, which invests in female-funded companies, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and the lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the Venture podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Oh, and definitely don't forget to leave us a review because that really helps us get the podcast out there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Natalia. all right thanks so much for joining us
1: yes thanks for having me Keith. excited to chat
0: likewise i am so excited uh because we're going to talk about a topic that i just always find super fascinating and that is space uh and you have a company that is doing really really interesting work in the in this uh, industry so there's a lot to talk about but uh i certainly want to spend this time when i have an opportunity to talk to an expert like yourself to talk about space and what this all means, because there's been such a renewed interest in space. Um, And when I think of what, you know, SpaceX has done, Blue Origin, uh, you know, Virgin Galactic, right? So there's all these companies that are bringing a lot of excitement to the table. So when I think of why this renewed excitement is happening, I think a lot of it might be related because we have the, you know, private companies that are driving, what is happening with innovation, and, and you know, having rockets be reusable and things like that? So, what's your take? Like, why is this all of a sudden like a renewed interest in, in space?
1: Yes, I think there are uh, several factors that are contributing to that, and it's a little bit, you know, chicken and egg. I'm not sure um, of the order, but uh, I'll just run through what I think is going on. Um, so you know, I guess there's always been this background of Moore's law, um, you know, marching on and, and making electronics um, smaller and, and more affordable. And, and of course, that um, permeates into the space industry. So where, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you needed a school bus size satellite to perform a mission. Uh, now you can do it in a much smaller package and um, smaller in space, um, you know, is pretty directly correlated to cheaper to build and cheaper to launch. And so costs just across the board have come down. Uh, And so that puts, you know, using space and um, as a place to put your sensors um, into, you know striking distance of all sorts of new customers not just um, governments of, you know, wealthy nations um, but now um, everyone from, from them to You know, Fortune 500 type companies to small startups to um, high school students were some of our first, you know, customers essentially, um, and, you know, hobbyists in their garage. So that's a big one. Um, You do have a big uh, infusion of private capital. Um, And so we had, you know, some wealthy billionaires that like to light things on fire, putting some money in, and then a lot of, you know, venture capital and, and, now some more later stage private equity um coming in and and i think that pattern uh we've seen that in other industries um you know like uh biotech for example was primarily government funded and and then at a certain point um moved more into the private domain so so that's been happening um we've always had you know as humans this desire to explore so i think you know that that hasn't gone away and, and remains strong uh and maybe the fourth thing i would say is that um, now we have the ability to process and analyze a lot of data and um, there's a desire for everybody around the planet to be connected to the internet uh which you know wasn't the case um
0: you know, 10, 20 years ago. Okay, so two important questions that I need to ask you in addition to, you know, the whole world of the space industry. So um, Mars, right? So um, SpaceX has a whole website catered towards Mars. Um, There was an announcement recently, was it NASA that's looking for people to volunteer to spend like a, a year of their time as if they were, uh,
1: yeah, located
0: on Mars, like there's those some, some something in the news recently talking about that looking for volunteers to, to to pretend they're colonizing Mars. So what, like, when do you think this is going to happen? Because the conversation is becoming more real than fantasy.
1: Yes, uh, well, generally, if, you know, Elon puts a time, timeline to something, I tend to believe him, uh, you know, give or take a couple of years, maybe. So I, I really do think that you know the twenty thirty uh, plus or minus, but probably not minus, you know, two three years is is realistic for for SpaceX to um, get the first people onto Mars, uh, which is pretty crazy.
0: That is so crazy. It's I mean it's just unbelievable to think it's there. And I guess I don't know. Maybe it's like when you know exploration to the moon, when that generation was like wow, how are they going to do that? How are they going to pull it off? So I guess it's a a similar type of thing. Now, what about space tourism, right? So we just had Sir Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos do suborbital flights. Um, So it seems like that's going to happen for civilians to uh, have similar experiences as long as they can afford a ticket.
1: Yes. I mean, you know, I don't know how you felt, especially after watching the second one um, recently, but I was just like, this is the beginning. Humans are going to now be, you know, recreationally in space. So it feels like a very important time for that right now. And it's very exciting. Um, I, I think, you know, so far, pretty good track record. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I think like most people, I, I, can't really predict the future and think, you know, with much clarity, like what the demand and and the market for that is, is really going to be, but it does feel like it's, it's going to happen and we're right now at the beginning of it and it's um, so cool.
0: So cool. So exciting. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's rewind the clock. Uh, So your background, like where did you grow up? What were you like as a child?
1: Uh, I grew up in, Oregon um in the Willamette Valley which is now a really happening place where a lot of pinot noir comes from and all sorts of great restaurants and um you know I was pitching an investor in New York one time and he said oh Newburg I had one of the best meals of my life there and I'm thinking like no 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 um we can't be talking about the same place <laughs> personally um you know I was uh had a strong interest in thinking about aliens and um you know if there are that many stars I can see at night again in rural Oregon where you can see the stars pretty well. Uh, if I can see that many stars, you know, the chances that um there's other life out there, you know, can't be zero. And um so that was a strong interest of mine. And then I I was also really into math. Um, and so you know, I remember in high school, I was at a party one time and I, I must have been taking calculus um, at the time because I sat down on a couch with somebody who said, you know, if you think derivatives are exciting, wait until you learn about integrals. And then we spent the rest of the night integrating things um, at a party. So, um, you know, I think that's a good um, uh, example of how I was growing up. I was social and had a lot of typical interests, but I also had these other deep passions as well, that sort of culminated into um, a career in aerospace.
0: Well, and from what I gathered in my research leading up to this podcast is you had a desire to be an astronaut and you applied to NASA twice?
1: Yeah, twice. Uh, Once I think was um, after my master's degree. And then the next call that NASA put out was after my PhD. And that time I was certain, um, you know, I would at least make it past the generic rejection postcard phase, but I didn't. So I just have two of those postcards that, you know, say thank you, but no, thank you.
0: All right. So you went on to study aerospace, Mm -hmm. right at San Diego State University. And like talk about your academic years.
1: Yes. So um, fortunately, uh, being into aliens and math meant that I stayed on, you know, this, the single course, um, bachelor's master's and PhD focused on aerospace, um, uh, which can mean, um, uh, like aeronautical and, um, astronautical fields, um, air and no air. And I, I, stayed on the space side. Um, and I, in college, uh, took a class where I learned about, was a space propulsion class. And the first 90% of the class was about, uh, more about chemical rockets. And uh, I learned during that part of the course that those are pretty well understood. Um, you know, the the reaction, humans have been harnessing um, similar reactions since, you know, 400 BC with um, the first fireworks. Uh, today, the rockets are, are pretty well understood. We don't we don't quite understand the very fine details of the combustion reaction, but our models are pretty accurate and, and we're getting there all the time. So most times when um, folks innovate around chemical propulsion, now it's about you know manufacturing and materials or even like operationally on the business side. And there's just not a lot being done uh, in chemical propulsion anymore. So we spent the last 10% of the class on electric propulsion and my takeaway from the class was we don't really understand this very well at all. Some things just sort of work to push charged particles out the back and produce thrust. And so we use them, but uh, they could be much better. We could understand them um, more clearly. There could be new types that are developed. And so um, hearing that and, and wanting to sort of, you know, try to help, you know, work amongst the pioneers in the field, I thought that sounds like a an area for me, I can learn more about aliens. Of course, um, I can improve our, you know, species knowledge of the universe, and and it's a field that needs more work. So um, that that led me to focus on um, electric propulsion specifically. Um, I took a detour during my master's degree. I, I did work on a chemical rocket there. Um, it was a very small scale and intended to be um, micro manufactured. Uh, and the idea there was that you could cluster many of them together and generate a high enough thrust to weight ratio that you could actually launch a small satellite, Um, and then I, that was at Duke University, Um, I tried to start a company based on that research, but it fell apart a bit painfully, and so I decided I don't want to be an entrepreneur anymore, Um, and you know, that, you see how that worked out. Um, so then I went to MIT to do my PhD and, and did get to focus on electric propulsion, a new type of ion engine. Um, and you know, through some events that maybe we'll talk about, uh, founded Axion.
0: Well, so you talked about, you, you thought about starting a company and it didn't quite come together. So what, what did you learn from that?
1: Uh, it was probably my first, uh, lesson in how important the, People aspect is of, well, really just of working or being a human at all. Like those interactions and um, having having tough discussions and not, you know, sweeping things under the rug. How important that is. um, That people have, you know, their own aspirations and goals, and you either have to, you know, figure out how to work within those or or not, and so we fell apart just because we didn't have those tough conversations and didn't figure out, you know, what happens if somebody wants to go to law school? Um, uh, what happens if somebody's not, you know, as dedicated as, as we need them to be? And instead, we just sort of marched forward and hoped for the best, and that was not the winning strategy.
0: And did you always have your sights on MIT to pursue your PhD?
1: Um, No, I mean, I think leaving Oregon, I had never even heard of MIT. Um, And then when I got in, my brother asked me, like, isn't that, you know, a a vocational school? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, no, I can't say I always did. But at a certain point, um, you know, in grad, doing my master's, um, I I started becoming interested in, in doing a PhD there.
0: And like the MIT Space Propulsion Lab. Like that existed before you studied there and did research. Yeah. So I mean, that was a perfect fit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, if you, you know, if you want to look to where a lot of the origins of many space propulsion technologies come from, you know, it's, it's there. And so um, it was like a magical experience.
0: (laughs) That is amazing. So that's when you started to think about what eventually has become the company that you've built, Axion Systems. So uh you were researching and building ion electrospray propulsion systems. So what it what's the best way to explain that?
1: Sure. So it's a type of electric propulsion system of of which there are a handful. And those are distinct from chemical um. In that they use electrical energy instead of chemical to um, push things out the back of the spacecraft and move it in the opposite direction. Um, so to run an electrical an electric propulsion system, you have to use um, solar panels or batteries or nuclear reactors um, that you know then power a generator. So um, uh, yeah, electrical energy instead of the energy released from breaking the chemical bonds. Um, and an ion engine. Uh, in its simplest terms is uh, you take a charge particle which happens to be an ion in this case and you put it in an electric field um, which acts upon the ion and it uh, accelerates it out the back of the spacecraft and that that momentum reaction um momentum you know in one direction um produces you know the the exchange reaction and, and provides momentum to the spacecraft to push it uh, in the direction it's trying to go so um sort of fundamentally we we are like an ion engine in that we accelerate ions out the back but um the way we do that is different the the type of propellant we use is different um so it is a a different class of engine um with a lot of similarities um so i could explain how how the electrospray works now yeah uh so similar to an ion engine um we accelerate ions out the back but we use a liquid propellant and this is the first time a liquid has been used in an electric propulsion system and it's where all of our differences come from um, so we we supply um, the liquid propellant to the ion emitters uh, and at those ion emitters there's a strong electric field that's applied and that field acts to um, stress the liquid uh, eventually uh, it pulls it into a conical shape And at the tip of that cone, the electric field is is further intensified because it comes to a sharp point. Um, And that electric field is then strong enough to to lead to ion evaporation from the liquid. So we're essentially pulling individual ions um, from the the tip of that ion emitter. Um, And then that same field that that did that stressing and pulling on the liquid uh, and extracting of the ion then accelerates the ion out the back of the spacecraft. And this actually is so far, um, as far as what we're aware of, um, the most efficient way to extract and accelerate, um, an ion to produce thrust. We don't, we don't generate, uh, we generate very little waste heat compared to other systems. Um, so it's a, a very efficient technique. Um, and then it also allows us to, to operate first on a very small scale. So this phenomena happens, um, phenomenon happens at uh, the order of like 20 nanometers. So maybe on the order of the size of, you know, smaller than a human hair. Uh, and so that's that's the size of an individual ion emission site. Uh, and then we can aggregate that, you know, aggregate many of them together and scale that up to serve um, satellites really of any size. So um, we we think of that as an advantage. We get to start small and efficient and then scale from there instead of trying to take an existing technology and try to shrink it and and force it into a smaller box.
0: Got it. Fascinating. Okay. So at what point are you like this research you're starting to realize there's an opportunity here to commercialize it, to build a company around it?
1: Yes. We had a lot of interest uh, while we were still at MIT. Um, We had some of the big aerospace prime companies um, trying to buy systems from us. Um, and you know MIT can't sell a product, uh, and uh, they some of them were also trying. They were talking to the technology licensing office, trying to license the IP out. And so we took that as you know a pull from the industry, um, maybe an you know early form of product market fit, I suppose. Um, and uh, I I think now with hindsight, uh, the technology was still too immature, and and could have been incubated for longer in the lab versus me having to figure out how to keep funding um, the ongoing, you know, pretty fundamental research um, and development. Um, And that's hard to to fund with venture money. Um, But it was the timing, you know, we were sort of pushed to do it because otherwise somebody else was going to license it out.
0: So then you, how did you meet your co-founder, Lewis?
1: Um, We met on the first day of MIT orientation. Oh, Uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Fate was bound to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Very cool. Uh, So this is 2014, I think, is when you kind of started to build Axion?
1: Yeah, it depends on who I'm talking to. If if I should be farther along by now, then yes, it was 2014. Uh, But really, we licensed the IP out and you know,
0: technically formed a company in 2012 got it okay which was probably ideal timing to start to build what you're building because now you know we kind of started off by talking about the renewed interest in space and how yes. you know, companies have the opportunity to launch satellites for a lot of data collection okay. so um there was a you know if, if anyone listening there's a great bloomberg video that they produced about Natalia and they talk about your business, um, which I encourage everyone to watch, which was great. Uh, And they talk about, or you made a comment. You're like, we're like building shovels for space. Mm -hmm. So talk about kind of like your, your business, like, like why is now the great opportunity for a company like yours?
1: Yes. uh, It's a, you know, I suppose I should, I try never to put these words together, but, Essentially, we're kind of like a component provider. We provide a subsystem for um, the spacecraft. Our customers are the folks that are building the satellites. They're not necessarily the end users of the data or anything. And so in some ways, that can be um, maybe less flashy and um, less sexy than um, if we were doing really cool image analysis or something. Um, However, I do think, you know, it is more of, of like the picks and shovels um, not quite infrastructure, but but similar in that um, every satellite with, you know, capabilities worth generating any revenue needs to be able to maneuver once they're in space. And uh, providing the propulsion system means that um, instead of having to sort of pick our winners really early on when this industry is really um, just starting to to be built and and to experience a lot of growth, we can serve every application. So wherever um, you know the demand seems to really take off, uh, I like using space puns. Um, then then you know we can sell to those customers, and and I think that's really nice and important for an, a nascent market.
0: And yeah, I think you know the for our audience just to understand what's happening, like. Once the satellite is in space, it's your technology that allows it to maneuver. So the propulsion once it's already in orbit.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not launch. Right.
0: Right. Exactly. So the the timing, right? So the growth of the satellite industry, the hustle just had published is perfect timing for me because just last week they talked about a whole segment on the growth of the satellite industry. Yeah. So they said in 2019, there was about 2,000 satellites in orbit. Today, there's 6,000. By 2030, they estimate about 50,000. So wow, right? Like, you know, one of the, one part of me is like, amazing. There must be so much just data that's being uh, leveraged that's, you know, a, a good thing that's helping, you know, with global warming and things like that. Uh, but then you start thinking like, wow, that's a lot of satellites. So so, like, what, what, what are some of the interesting use cases that you're seeing for satellites? Question one. And then question two is like, how is that all going to work out? How do you navigate satellites around each other at 50,000? I mean, obviously your company helps with that.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, so what the heck is everybody doing with all those satellites? So um, there are two main buckets. Uh, one's imaging and one's communications um, and imaging, you know, at the end of the day, one, a satellite can take a picture and sell it to infinity customers. So, um, there, there will be providers and and that market is still growing, but it's, um, uh, you know, as demand increases, um, but I've never tried to word it that way. But but you get what I'm saying. If more people want a picture, that doesn't mean you need to launch more satellites. Whereas on on the other hand, in in the communications sector, um, you know people really want to be on the internet. Um, so every uh, satellite up there can only serve you know a set number of customers based on how many transponders it has on board and based on how much power you know how big solar panels are and so on. So if you want to serve more customers, uh, you need more satellites. Um, and if those customers start to consume more data, you know, as we see, just um, seems to be a never ending trend, then then you also need more satellites. So those numbers that um, you were mentioning, and actually when I made our first pitch deck, there were only 1000 satellites in orbit. Um, and and so those 1000 to 6000 to 50, um, that's mostly the communications and internet um, satellites.
0: So going to Elon Musk, like Starlink yeah. type of thing things. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. yeah, exactly. And then um, uh, all of the satellites. So um, when they're launched, they're, they're never launched to exactly, you know, the precise orbit that they need to be in. So there's usually some adjustment or even some really significant orbit raise or lower uh, to reach their, their desired altitude. And then Uh, Often they're launched in in groups of, you know, 6, 12, 24 satellites. So you obviously don't want them all clumped together. So you also need propulsion to spread them out along their orbit. Um, During the lifetime of their mission, you know, when it's supposed to be business as usual, uh, the Earth isn't a perfect sphere. So they're getting pulled in different ways because of, um, you know, differences in the the gravity field. Um, There's still atmospheric drag that they have to correct for. There are potential collisions that they have to avoid. Um, and so there is a lot of small maneuvering throughout the lifetime. And then at the end of the mission, um, as it stands today, there are some pretty loose, generous um, regulations around um, deorbiting your satellite. Um, and as, as we you know, creep up on these numbers of you know, more tens of thousands of satellites in orbit, um, I think that landscape will change a lot. I think there's you're going to need to have a lot more capability for maneuvering to avoid things um de is going to become stricter and stricter uh and you know we didn't talk about this yet but um more traditional propulsion systems in space are both chemical and, and electric and they're basically like little bombs they either have really toxic explosive um propellants on board or they have um, a gas that's at you know really high pressures that makes them the equivalent of little TNT sticks going around. So if those get hit by something, then you're creating even more debris. And then the satellites coming behind that see that debris and potentially get hit. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes in in those areas coming up.
0: Makes sense. Wow. Okay. Um, now with raising capital, you talked about you raised funding at one point. So I think it was uh correct me if I'm wrong, but 2015 was the seed series mm-hmm. A in 2016 uh, latest round of funding was 42 million series C. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how did you go about raising capital for something that was, you know, early, not something that VCs had a thesis around type of thing, right? It's not like SaaS cloud-based software where they can say, okay, we probably need $7 million to get this company going, and then it'll continue to raise more capital as it scales. You're doing something really different. <laughs> and the customer, right, is not an easy sale. I would imagine this is a very complex go-to-market strategy to gain interest in what you do and have someone actually purchase it. So how did you go about getting that investor interest?
1: Yes, uh, I think... Early on, it was actually uh, much easier. And, and now all those, um, you know, checks I was writing are being cashed um, and uh, not not literal checks, but you know what I mean. Um, so in the beginning, there was there was a big piece of um, of educating potential investors on, you know, what the heck is going on in the industry. Is this, you know, a, just a passing fad or or is this real um, you know what the heck is an ion engine? Um, Convince me that these small satellites will adopt propulsion when people are just sort of flinging up these things without much capability right now and, and without any propulsion. There was a ton of of educating um, in the beginning, but those early uh, you know the early risks I think are are mostly around the team and you know, does this have the potential to be a, a big idea? And so at the at the seed round, you know, I think we were strong um, on those points. And then it, the hardest part was probably doing the, the educating. Um, and then that evolves, you know, we don't look like a software company. So um, our, our growth is different, our, you know, metrics are different and, and everything. Um, so it's been mostly about, you know, finding the right sorts of partners that are willing to um, sort of, Kind of pave that unfamiliar path and figure out how do we measure this? What what should you have accomplished by now, and and what are we going to do in the next twenty four months? Um, so people that don't need you to just fit into their pre existing formula.
0: And well, where's the company today in terms of you know, number of employees? You know, hiring growth plans ahead.
1: Yes, we are almost fifty people today, uh, and. On the, I think it was July 29th uh, ended up being the launch date for the SpaceX the Transporter to launch. Um, so we sent two systems up on that, and we are waiting very impatiently to start getting some data back. So they're still doing the satellite checkout. So I don't have anything um, to report just yet, but hopefully soon. Um, so we're. Really, that's sort of our first product that there's a market for and that we we are starting to sell and um, really at the inflection point of, of having our product in the market and generating revenue. Um, and then with our new partner in, in tracker capital, um, I think we're maybe not quite doubling, but you know, we have pretty aggressive growth plans over the next 12, 18 months um selling this product and establishing you know maturing our manufacturing um, processes for that and then you know going back to the lab and, and working on the next generation as well so that we can keep serving the larger and larger satellite segments
0: it's a challenge for most companies to find great talent and it's all about the team that likely is a indicator of success so I would think hiring for your team would be even that much harder. Like how do you find people that have experience doing the types of things that you need people to do?
1: Yes. Um, you know, at the end of the day, people people are motivated by, you know, delivering products that customers actually need and by working with other smart people. So, um, and then having a really inspiring mission, I think um, just really helps and, um, you know, I think future Natalia is going to be sad if I do something different ever, because this is just so, you know, powerful and exciting and, and awesome. Um, so, and and then on the, the hiring side, um, you know, a startup by its nature is, is, you know, generally doing something that hasn't been done before. So you're never looking for, for somebody that's been exactly trained in, in what it is you're doing. Um, that said, you know, we do have a lot of, really specialized areas um like one um you know passively moving fluids around in micro channels in microgravity. Uh turns out nobody does that and
0: uh, nobody's done that.
1: (laughs) Yeah so so we have to you know figure out well what exactly is the most important discipline and and where might we find those people. Um, So that's that's been um, a little bit tricky, but I think mo- a lot of startups go through that. You're doing something new, um, so you just have to have to do your best and and find people that are creative and know how to rapidly, uh, rapidly iterate. Uh, one thing that has been hard, though, you know, especially when we want space experience, uh, we're trying to move people from, you know, the Bay Area or Los Angeles or Texas or somewhere to Boston, and they're like, "No, I'm not that big of a fan of snow." <laughs>
0: right yeah. <laughs> that's definitely a challenge no doubt yeah. so kind of you know looking back um you know you almost started a company you know way back when i think you were at duke and now you have built a company so looking back like what are things that you would want to warn an entrepreneur that's building a company in this industry of space of here here's things that i've learned that you probably don't want to repeat
1: Yes, I have a few of those. Um, So the first one I mentioned earlier, which was, you know, now with hindsight, I can see that there was still, you know, probably too much R&D left to do on the technology. Um, That meant it wasn't yet a good fit for venture money. And uh, maybe it could have stayed in a lab longer, or I could have focused more on, you know, government R&D dollars or something until it was a little bit closer to um, you know, a real product that that people would buy. So that's a big one. And I think related to that um, is, you know, I, I think, you know, I don't think I necessarily messed this up, but I realized um, how important it is to be really like ruth, ruthlessly honest with yourself about the assumptions you're making. And, um, you know, you, you spend the first couple of years making all these really rosy forecasts because the market, you know, maybe it doesn't exist yet and and you need to create it. So you, you have to be the only optimist sometimes if, if it's going to become a reality, but then at some point, you know, you have to say like, how, what in the pessimistic scenario, how should I be planning for that? And, and so kind of knowing when to go between the two and, and being honest with yourself. Um, and then I think the third thing is that it's, the whole experience has been so much more about the people than I ever really imagined. And I'm, I thought, you know, I I never really had a clear definition of what makes a successful business, because I think on a lot of timescales, all companies are successful and unsuccessful. Um, And I think I'm starting to realize that you have to, you can't just, run a company in pursuit of revenue or profit or or your business objectives, but you also have to sort of like equally hold the people side of the organization as well. And you have to build, you know, a safe and trustful environment and develop employees and provide autonomy. And you can't really focus on one without the other. And, uh, I've just been trying to learn more and do that better the whole time too.
0: So I would imagine there's a lot going on in, terms of companies that are building products for the space industry so are there are other companies that you can think of that you're like wow what they're doing is really really cool
1: yes um well one that comes to mind is um i really like astronis um they're building a small geo bus and i respect the team a lot a lot of smart people there um, really they're the only one that I've seen sort of playing in that field. So they're they're still kind of unique and have an exciting opportunity. Um so you know I'm keeping my eye on on them and staying in touch. And then um Swarm is another one. So I, I really you know also respect the, the founding team there. Um and they were just acquired by SpaceX, which you know I had heard never happens. Um so uh you know they must be really awesome i mean i already knew they were but now i think that they're
0: even more awesome now uh another thing that you're involved in is x-factor ventures which is a um flybridge started x-factor ventures as a investment vehicle to invest in female founders so so talk about your role with uh x-factor
1: yes uh i probably around the uh leaving call co- no starting in college i had made it a point to always be, um, you know, involved in some sort of extracurricular um, volunteer work that usually had to do with youth and STEM fields. And sometimes it was, you know, female focused and sometimes it wasn't. Um, So that's been a big part of my adult life. And I learned, I I had pitched Flybridge, I think maybe twice and they kept saying no to me. But so I knew the, the group there, um, I saw Flybridge come together for the first fund, and I knew and, and looked up to many of the uh, women partners there. Um, so when they were thinking about the second fund, and, and I got in touch with them, and um, they asked if I would join, um, I you know jumped on that opportunity. So we invest in you know female-founded companies with you know billion-dollar ideas, um, and the goal is also to train us partners as, you know, future VCs, you know, to go out on our own or join other funds, um, because the um, demographics there are also really poopy. Um, uh, so it, it was really in line with, you know, how I like to spend my copious amounts of free time. And um, and I love the idea of, um, you know, tipping the scales, both on the entrepreneur side, but also on the uh, investor side and, they a lot of the the women on the team had backgrounds in you know software um consumer uh and not so much on the kind of well space um you know maybe obviously but on the you know hard tech and science side so they needed some help vetting ideas that came in that basically anything that was you know science or or hard technology um they would throw over to me and i would help diligence um, and i'll just tell you none of them are close to space or anything i had ever learned about before but i'm having a lot of fun having to learn really quickly about new industries and new technologies um, to make those decisions
0: so so what advice would you have for time management
1: yes uh that there's you know no perfect solution so don't use searching for one as an excuse to not just do the work. Um, I have a couple little tips I like, um, I do yester box, which is just like a philosophy for managing your inbox. So I, I really only answer and process emails that I got the day before. So yesterday, um, and, uh, today I, I leave those alone because it's like this, I have no idea how long that list will become. So I can't properly um, think about how to manage that time obviously I monitor them so if something you know catches on fire I'm paying attention but I I don't respond to them um, so that's one thing and then I'm I'm very big on uh, you know I'm a morning person so I wake up and one of the first things I do is write out in my planner uh, my day uh, so that I don't get you know surprised and I just build in time for for everything so it-
0: so yesterbox that's like a philosophy that other people follow too like inbox zero it's just a different yeah. way of, of how yeah, you manage exactly. it got it okay very cool i've never heard of that so i'm gonna check that out um what are three apps you can't live without um
1: audible and and overcast i do those both often um i actually with covid one of the things i was sad about was not driving to the office anymore because I used to have a commute where I could listen to books and podcasts. Um, so, so that uh, probably my camera, cause I have three little ones and they're going to turn into adults that have 1 billion pictures of them on the internet somewhere. So sorry about that. Um, <laughs> and, and then let's see one uh, OneNote. So I manage all of my to-do lists and notes and everything in OneNote.
0: So extending on the podcast book theme, any recommendations there?
1: Yeah. um, Venture fizz. Uh, Nice.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, Last year, the year before, my husband and I read all three of the three body problem series, and um, that was good. I I recommend that. Um, uh, Was
0: it the three... Body, problem three
1: body. Yeah, three body problem. It's three books. And it's um, by a Chinese author. And I think they're making a movie about it. I'm not sure. Um, the first book was a bit of a slog, but two and three. I still think about the the concepts behind them. Um, pretty mind boggling and, and really, really good.
0: Alright, what al- What else? I mean, we've covered a lot. But what else do you like to do outside of work?
1: Well, I have you know, a recent transplant to the Bay Area, so I'm working on becoming a more outdoorsy person. Uh, so I'm trying to get into paddle boarding and cycling and things. Um, my husband's a pilot, so we fly places sometimes for short trips or to go skiing. Um, I've taken up a lot of cooking during COVID, like probably everybody else in the world um and yeah good food good wine and good company
0: all right one last question if you could be any character in star wars which one would you be
1: um probably ray i don't know she just seems like a badass and um it's a you know the hero's journey she's discovering that she's even cooler than she thought she was and I think all of us have a little bit of that desire inside.
0: Yeah, they nailed it with that character, no doubt.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Natalia, thanks so much for walking us through your background, all the great work you're doing in the space industry and uh, yeah, I can't wait until, you know, Mars happens.
1: Yeah, you too. Yeah, thanks, Keith. Thanks for the thoughtful questions and the discussion. That was fun.